Well, the title of our sermon this morning is Justice Done and Seen to be Done. Justice Done and Seen to be Done. So I'm taking actually, uh, if you will, verse 6 of John 19. Pilate's words, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Well, that's hardly justice done and seen to be done. Find no fault in him, but you take him away and crucify him. Some justice, isn't it, there? And we must say that that is a seeming injustice. Because that's what we see if we just regard the processes of trial which our Lord had, firstly at the hands of the the Jews, the Jewish council, and then before Pilate, representing there the the Roman system of uh, trial, investigation, and punishment if required and necessary. But both systems, the Jewish and the Roman system, failed, failed utterly didn't deliver justice, delivered injustice. Justice was not seen to be done, nor was it done at all. And yet, while the human systems failed, beyond them, behind them, lay a greater plan that these men, oh, mere men, weren't they just for all their titles, for all their seeming qualifications, Pilate there ascended to the rank of governor, I mean, rank that of this uh, part here of the Roman Empire, or Caiaphas and Annas, his father-in-laws, the representatives there of the the priestly caste, yet failing utterly to give justice. But little did they know, little did they comprehend. So perhaps we can see with Pilate beginning to comprehend that he was involved in something and with someone greater than himself, that God's perfect justice was at work, that there was a system of justice delivery that was going to deliver justice absolutely perfectly. And yet, through all of this human failure and human sin so spectacularly on display, there was going to come an outcome that would actually be justice done, and seen to be done in a way that nobody, nobody could quite see coming, except known there to the wisdom of God. And in that today, friends, we can be very glad, very humbled, but very glad. My first heading then, human justice failed. No, it wasn't done, it wasn't seen to be done. And scripture goes through it in painful detail, doesn't it? The conversations between our Lord and Pilots, the toings and the froings. Well, we'd have had time. We could have read of the Jewish court and what it did. And we'll come to that in a moment in more detail. But uh, that's all there, all on public record. And we marvel, don't we, as we read it? How wicked, how lawless these hands were. How remarkable the depravity of the human heart. They could sink to such depths could act with such impunity against one who was so eminently full of dignity, glory, holiness, true Pilate. You found no fault in him. Nobody could. He's sinless. And yet here he is being so ill-treated. And the treatment is, isn't it? It just sinks to such depths, such 
hatred, such enmity, such mocking. Psalm 22 captures that, doesn't it, in in advance. It has it all there written up before it even happened. And so we realize this is fulfilling scripture down to the last detail of it, dividing up his clothing, casting lots for it, and all of the rest of it. And it is, it's just one indignity after the other, one falling hard on the heels of another. And of course, scripture compels us, reader, reading this years after the event, not caught up with the the kind of atmosphere of that day, not to being driven by the chief priest there or just uh, just part of it, innocent bystanders, but suddenly becoming guilty partakers. We read it with more objective eyes and shake our heads how such a thing could have been allowed to happen. But it did. And beyond it, all was the plan of God to render actually perfect justice. Well, the Jewish system, let's just dwell on that for a moment there and and see how totally and utterly that it failed. And we're already prepared for its failure well in advance throughout the Gospels. It's trailed to us that actually all the religious leaders want to do is destroy this remarkable teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, as their Pilate had written upon the, the inscription on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, he went round, we read there, doing good and releasing people from the power of the devil. And yet so many could only find ill words to say of him. And were we to look at John 11, the raising of Lazarus, that's just happened. And what a a talking point that that became. And yet the conclusion of it in the hands of the high priest Caiaphas, John 11, reading from verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, the rest of the the chief priests, religious leaders, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then we read a comment on this. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas uh, saw here the danger to their place and prestige. Much better that this person should die, got out the way, that no, as it were, trouble should come their way, the high priest and his company, and that that would be very, very expedient. That's what he thought. Already there. You're not going to get justice from this man's hands. He's already made up his mind. Inconvenient facts that might come his way as they were destined to do at the trial. He was just going to scotch them, just as people do. He presented here with the clearest evidence and still failed to see it. Still have a, a remarkable bigotry and prejudice that stops them being able to concede the point. No interest in justice at all. Luke 22, there in verses 1 to 2, events in Jerusalem at that Passover. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. How they might kill him. And wanting to do it in secret, they were afraid. Common people hearing him gladly. It wasn't going to be a popular thing there to seize him in the full light of day and, and, and take him away. People might object to that. So this was all to be done with Judas's help, of course, and secretly. And so having secured uh, 
His person, having dragged him there as though he was a thief, coming out to him with clubs and swords as for a robber, they take him from the Garden of Gethsemane and lead him off to the trial. The trial before the high priest has already decided that it's expedient for one man to die, not for the whole nation to die. Happened at night? Well, that's not the time for things to happen. That's not open court. That's a kangaroo court. That, that's not justice here for a start. And the offence being one that was a capital offence, he called himself the son of God. To their mind, that must be blasphemy. And therefore, he's worthy of death. Well, there were very careful procedures that you had to follow. Certainly not have a trial at night. And certainly not rush to a decision there and then. And uh, open and shut case, that's it. And uh, we just take him away to his death. This was not something that should have been rushed. should have been carefully deliberated. Time to cool off, as it were, afterwards to make sure that we've got the, the facts of the case right and that we're not uh, hurrying something so vital of a man's life is at stake, hurrying this to its conclusion. Well, that's exactly what they, they did. So if we read in Matthew chapter 26, verses 65 to 67. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, Here's spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? There's a man in a hurry. Uh, no further evidence needed here. You don't have to, as I'll say in a minute, consider actually what the words are he has just said and ponder them if they might be true. So anyway, required answer, or there's the question, required answer came back, the answer and said he's deserving of death. And they spat in his face and beat him, and they struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to his Christ, who is the one who struck you. Well, that's not a cooling off period. That's a, that's a hurried decision. And rushing him away to his death. That wasn't how it was meant to be done. No, if we stay there a while, yep, Matthew chapter 26, it makes painful reading, doesn't it, just? And we wince at the injustice of all of this. That false witnesses were, were actively looked for. They didn't, uh, as it were, kind of groan when they had these witnesses whose, as we will read, their testimony did not agree, but they actually were on the, on the make, on the sort of proactively looking. Any old thing will do. We don't care if it's true or not, as long as it sticks. Well, there's justice, not... Matthew 26 and verse 59, just on from there. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Well, they made up their minds he was going to die. It didn't really matter how he died or what, what kind of words were said that uh, may be there in testimony, but they'd, they'd try the best to find anything, everything. Throw the kitchen sink in here. And it's telling, isn't it, the words they looked for false testimony but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, embarrassing, isn't it? Two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And they take those words, and they're twisted words, out of context words. And the high priest uh, takes those and uh, tries to get some mileage out of them. But the embarrassment is only all the more there. And Mark's gospel records that in chapter 14, and verses 55 to 59, having looked for false testimony, well, let's hope it all stands up when you actually get these fellows to come and say it. But no, it didn't even work at that level. Mark 14, verse 55, now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. We heard that from Matthew, didn't we? 
For many false witness against him, but here's a little detail that Mark has, but their testimonies did not agree. <laughs> their stories didn't even add up. Uh, and yet the high priest just nodded. Well, next. Uh, right, okay, well, you go away now. Next. Uh, you just stopped the trial. This was a trial in any sort of fair system. The case had collapsed at that point. As soon as witnesses come up there and start disagreeing amongst themselves, the case collapses. Should have ended right there, but it didn't. So uh, we carried on the case, and we read in Mark again, continuing, and some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. Within three days, I'll build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. Not even then. They couldn't even get their story straight with that. And uh, so different people coming out with different versions, and it should have all have been dismissed. Our Lord should have had opportunity to call witnesses to explain, actually, people who were there, and uh, not hearing it second, third hand, wherever these people have got it from, but actually did hear what he said. The temple was actually his body, and that after three days he would rise again. Not the, the temple in its literal sense, as though he's going to do some remarkable act of destruction, demolition. Uh, and then miraculously rebuild it. You say no such thing. But uh, anyway, the words that he said were not even properly inquired into. We read in Mark again, the verse uh, 60 of chapter 14, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Dreadful things they're saying. They don't test me, it doesn't look at you agree. So he's kind of put that all out of his mind and kind of, Keep going, keep going. Generated there a kind of bit of performative, self-righteous anger and indignation at uh, somehow that God's honor is at stake in this. You answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silence and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying, are you the Christ and son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. Well, that's straightforward enough. I don't know where the modern critics get there. He doesn't really clear about his divinity here, you know. I don't know where they get that from. It's here. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, those words were worth hearing and stopping, pausing, and asking for further clarification. But instead, no, as we've read, the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? That is all manifest injustice. That's the Jewish system. Because they wanted him dead. They didn't want a case. They didn't want a fair trial. They wanted to kill him. And so they used everything in their own power there, calling up false witnesses, whatever it would be, overruling all their normal processes to get the result they wanted. And of course, the Roman system also failed. And the Jews, they hated this. But they had to rely upon the Roman system to have him put to death because their own system... Under the, uh, under the rule of Rome, they were not allowed to do that. And they might have smarted under that, and uh, had they had their opportunity, they would have done it for sure, but they couldn't. In John 18, verse 31, uh, Jews said to Pilate, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, that he spoke signifying by what death he would die. Death designed by the Gentiles. Verse 32, then, John 18, Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? The Jewish system couldn't put him to death. The Roman system could. And its system of execution was crucifixion. And we already know that he's to be lifted up from the earth. How scripture is being fulfilled, even in the details of that. 
And Pilate himself, it's in his power, isn't it? As we read earlier, John 19, verse 10, are you not speaking to me? He says, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? That lay within his hands as the representative of the Roman system of justice. And yet he totally fails, doesn't he? That there he cannot find any fault. And he repeats it. John 18, verse 38. 19 verse 6, Luke 23, and various places there, Matthew 27 verse 24, finds no fault in him, declares the man to be innocent. Nothing that the Jews were saying would work. And of course, they couldn't expect the Roman governor to get very excited about any charge or blasphemy. That lay as a Jewish issue. But if you could persuade Pilate, that this man was actually a threat to the empire, that he was setting up a rival authority, that there's going to be unrest, there's going to be violence, then that would get Pilate's attention. So that's what they do. They play that. They don't actually refer much to their the case that they accused him of in their own court. No, they in fact invent a new one now to catch Pilate's attention and to try to persuade him that, yes, this man is a threat. Yes, he ought to be put to death. And that power, of course, only Pilate had. And Pilate himself, and we can read the commentary in Acts 3, as uh, Peter preaches to the people in Jerusalem after the event, that in Acts 3, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. Pilate actually now, realising what was happening to him, was trying to actually release the Lord Jesus. But he was unable because he was manipulated by them into crucifying him. And even though the chastisement that he gave to him, the scourging was totally unjustifiable. There was there justice in that, Pilate? If he's innocent, well, why punish him? Well, he was just trying to kind of draw the fire of the Jews. They are, something bad's happened to him, or we'll be satisfied with that. And then offer them seeming no-brainer choice of Barabbas, the murderer, or Jesus, the king of the Jews, your king. Uh, and they disappoint uh, Pilate at that point and choose Barabbas. The planet plan backfired. And Pilate was well and truly being outmaneuvered. And when it came to the fact that here, there was beginning to become a bit of an ugly mood, and that you could have unrest in the city, and Pilate himself will be called to account how come on your watch that this happened, it would be difficult. They said, well, this man, they said to me, was a rival to Caesar. Who was he? And Pilate there perhaps couldn't quite be certain that he'd be able to give a good answer on that. He'd look bad. And all on his watch, suddenly he's in deep water, and the Jews there, the leaders, are only too happy to leave him wallowing in it, and so John 19, verse 12, from then on we read, as Acts 3, 13 has already told us, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. I said, becoming a very tricky case. Is he a king? Pilate's beginning to think he is. But he doesn't think he's a king that poses a military threat. He's a king that seems to have such virtue that uh, really he's a king that uh, would be a very good king to have. And Pilate there, his heart's being very much drawn toward this person. But now he's hearing, well, if it is a king, then that's a threat. That's a rival to Caesar. And so Pilate is now well and truly 
intimidated and with the crowds in Luke 23 verses 22 to 29 we learn there they're shouting this is getting ugly and so justice Roman justice at this point fails and Pilate entrusted with the proper administration of Roman justice which could work quite well actually and many legal systems are kind of based upon the Roman system in that way but he fails for the reasons that we've just been looking at there, manipulated and maneuvered by a very cunning Jewish leaders here. They worked Pilate out and knew how to pull the strings, press all the right buttons and get the result. Get him to sentence Jesus to death, which they had no power to do, but he did and jobbed up and they shook him away to crucify him. Human justice failed. Second heading. For lengthy uh, first heading there, second heading, God's justice prevailed. God's justice prevailed and is prevailing throughout all of this sorry, sorry spectacle that I briefly alluded to here. And it is the death of the just for the unjust. First Peter chapter 3 uh, tells us this. Here's the commentary on all of this. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. There it is. Suffering here, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Ah, there is wisdom at work in this. And all of this uncomfortable injustice, all of this wretchedness of human depravity, Cruelty, viciousness, prejudice, bigotry, hatred, all of it. Hate there in its worst upon our Lord. And yet actually, it's God's justice that is the most important part of it all. And that is where all of those who are his accusers, all of those who exercise power, that was only given them in the first place from heaven, all of us are in the dock. It's us, all of us who are in the dock. It's our evil, perverse hearts that are being judged in this. And it is God's verdict on us that is the one that is the most important. For here, justice does not fail. Here, we do not have a crooked Caiaphas or a weak pilot sitting on our case, swayed this way and that, not able to look properly at the evidence because of their own corrupt hearts and agendas. God looks, God sees, God gets it absolutely right on us. And it's uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable. He reads our hearts, he reads our minds better than we ourselves. Whatever secrets I have, whatever secrets you have, he knows them all. And any of them, each of them, are indictable offences. And there's only one sentence that there is in heaven for sin, but it is death. Death, that is the only sentence that is appropriate and proportionate for the breaking of God's law. God is an objective judge. He is the giver of the law. He is the one who understands his own dignity properly, can assess the weight of his character adequately. We sinful creatures there mock God or think so little of him, think so little of sin, or don't think that he should have the right to do what he wants to do, as it were. No, oh, he does. And he's the only, only being in the whole universe who, who can get that right. And he's the only being in the universe who can assess adequately what it deserves. It deserves our erasure, our removal, 
hour to receive displeasure. His displeasure rained upon us, coming down upon us, and staying upon us, wrath abiding on us, and having that to bear for eternity. He can assess the damage of sin, its horror, its violence, its evil. And he and he alone can set the appropriate penalty, which is death. His glory is scorned, his justice is scorned, that we have willfully, savagely attacked his love and compassion, taken hold of his son as though we were the people doing it, and rubbishing him and consigning him to death and trampling his dignity there in the mire, standing around him, prophesy, Christ who struck you. And the attitudes and difference are almost what we have here written in the pages of Scripture. We all of us stand guilty before God's perfect justice, that we have scorned him, not delighted in him. We have found no pleasure in him, and he finds, therefore, no pleasure in us. And to us is given, really, something of what we can see happening here with our Lord Jesus Christ, in some measure, under the human injustice, what's, what's happening there, but it's going to happen even more upon the cross of loneliness, of darkness, of rejection of being despised, of having to bear incredible pain and sadness, of being in absolute need, and finally that need not met, not responded to. And there you have a taste of hell, dear friends, what that's going to be like. And if you like the sound of that, then go on in your way. But if you don't like the sound of that, then pause and hear more. So God's justice, his verdict against sin, required all of this, quite all of this. Because if, if it is the wages of sin is death, then what if, what if, if that is us and that is our sentence and that's where we're traveling to, what if another dies willingly in our place? Not compelled, not a victim found like Simon Cyrene, come on, you're going to help carry this cross, sort of press gang Shanghai into it but willingly consents to it, submits to it. What if one does that? And what if that one who does that himself had not sinned, that there is no fault in him as Pilate here correctly assesses now Lord Jesus Christ? What if another who has not himself to die for his own sin could be found, who is willing to take our place, and who has such glory, inherent glory in his person, because he is the son of God, correct, he is, that he should be able then to match oh, the gravity of the offense that we have committed breaking of God's law. But if one had such dignity that by his death, all of that offense could be covered over, all of that heinous wickedness could be properly accounted for The justice could look at it and say, ah, that penalty has been paid in full. Close the book on that case. No further charges admissible. Of course, we do have somebody who does that. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ, who is suffering all of this indignity here, who is having to bear all of this, that he might go forward for it wasn't all of this, this is human injustice that's proving to us where indeed this suffering servant is to show his obedience, 
show his willingness, show his determination to save us from our sins. Go through all of this pain. But the greater pain was on the cross. The greater pain was not the agony and the torture of that form of death, but it was that his father should there place upon him his displeasure. It's as though the displeasure is already there in all of these human trial processes. They're showing displeasure. That somebody should have to face that. Well, they must be rejected of God. There must be displeasure there. Oh, yes. But that displeasure is but a small token of what he's to have on the cross. He's begun to drink of that cup, but he's going to have to drink the cup of that bitterness to its dregs. He's going to have to drain it. And it's going to be there when three hours of darkness settle upon him, where he is abandoned, where he cries as in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he knew the answer to his question, that it had to be. He had to taste death for his people, had to bear the punishment for them, had to see the debt settled, and that he was the only qualified person to do it. Nobody else. That's what he wrestled with in the Garden of Gethsemane and knew it to be so. No other way. Only God's will here. If sinners are to be saved from their sin. My final heading, love made it happen. Love made it happen. Justice alone had no answer to our plight. Justice alone had no answer to our plight. This plan has love written all over it. Love to the very core of it. A willingness, a mercy that is just in everything that we read, in everything that we see. If justice were, would require our death, then God could just withdraw his hands and almost there like Pilate say, then away to your death you go. No more to be done. I find plenty of faults in these people. Let them bear their punishment. But it lies within God's compassion, compassion we cannot understand, cannot fathom. But it's his, and his to show, and mercy is going to triumph over judgment here, that love will ensure that there is an answer, and a final answer, and a good answer, an answer that can say it is finished, and which we can hear, and which we can rejoice in, and that that will be his gift to us, the best gift, the final gift, the only gift you'll ever need, the gift of his crucified son upon the cross. Because all the human injustice actually was part of a process in the ways of God's working to deliver God's perfect justice. And everything that our Savior was suffering at the hands of these human courts, the, the miseries, the dishonoring, the afflictions, the loneliness, the shame he was bearing, were just like a, an outward sign of what was going to be the greater work upon the cross and where Darkness would conceal the greatest of his agonies and his tortures. That there, there would be a modesty conferred upon him in this, where a great transaction is being done and visited upon him, our sin, bearing upon his soul in a greater way than any of the scourging or the crown of thorns or any of the words that were being spoken, ill-spoken words around the cross. This is what really counted when his father, in that mysterious way, in that way beyond our comprehension, how the father, regarding his son, could abandon him and could turn from him and leave him simply to bear 
what justice would require of us, our being brought low, our guilt, our shame, our isolation, our experiencing displeasure. And that was his. Not only to bear it for one other person, perhaps one person could bear it for another. No, he bore it for millions, millions upon millions of people. And so there was a suffering built into that that is more than just for one. This is for countless, countless people, which we are just a small sample here this morning. And that was love. That was love, friends. God is love. He is, isn't he? And here it is. And here you can see it. Word incarnate, God in the flesh dies, yes. The immortal dies, yes. We can say it here, mystery of mysteries. Not in his divine nature, how could he? But here is the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, he could. Sin is here punished. And we have but two options today. Two choices, and there's only ones out there. Would you know forgiveness of sin? Do you want peace with God? Do you want the gates of heaven to be unlocked and for you to be let in? It can happen, but you'll have to go to him. And you'll have to repent of your sin and your sin, my sin, a sin of sinners. We're all unjust people and we're all in our hearts and cleanness and violence and prejudice and all that we see here coming from Caiaphas and Annas and all the rest of them. Pilate, weakness there, failure to render judgment there manipulative ways oh that speaks doesn't it about us all well we have to confess it we have to own it for ourselves and say well that should that should be us finished a holy god surely just can't have any truck with us no and yet he does and that's where you have hope and i have hope today look to him believe upon the son believe upon him doing this for sinners clasp him to yourself Have him as your own. Say yes, yes to him. He must be my saviour, else I perish. Wash me saviour or I die, as top ladies him would say. Foul I to that fountain fly, that blood, his blood, his sacrifice. I need that to count for me. For God to be pleased now with his sacrifice, that he could be pleased now with me, a sinner. We can count the righteous. He could welcome me into heaven. Two options. You, I will have to die for our own sin or your sin, my sin can be transferred onto him, the son of God. Bear it, carry it, carry it away. That you could then be free. You don't have to pay twice. So the son pays all yes, but then you'll have to pay too. Ah, it wasn't quite as good as you were told. When he said it was finished, he sort of meant kind of finished. You're still going to have to work for this. You're still going to have to hold on to this. You could lose it any minute. He didn't say that. That's no promise if it still relies on me or on you for its fulfillment. He said, complete. Have this gift. It's now yours. And I will move everything, including moving you and me and our stubbornness and ongoing sinfulness. I will bring you through. You won't fail. You won't lose what you have. You'll keep it and you'll keep it for eternity. So here we have a harrowing account of human injustice. And yet behind it all lay love. Love that consented to stoop to all of this. That knew what scriptures had to be fulfilled. What suffering had to be evidenced. How willingness and an obedience had to be rendered. 
All of it there, showing us a little part of what it meant to be despised and ultimately rejected by God. So this is what Good Friday offers to you and to me. And we marvel at it, so we should, surveying this wondrous cross and drawing the conclusions that are that this is a very happy day for all who will believe, a very good day. And I trust for each of us, we too will taste it for ourselves and have the assurance and peace of our sin forgiven.